Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What's the role of policing? Is it to keep us safe or to keep us under control? And when the police are introduced to tense or difficult situations, are they making things better for communities or are they making them worse? These questions are at the heart of the discussions about the need for police reform in this country. And today, we're going to discuss them with two people on two sides of the issue. One an advocate, the other a police officer. And of course, we want to hear from you as well. That's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Who looks after us in this weird and complicated world? When we're kids, we interact with a variety of parents and siblings and cousins and neighbors and teachers in a way that attends the expectations that they are looking out for us. And when we get out into the broader world, it's friends or people in our community, whether they explicitly agree to it or not, who are often obligated to look out for our well-being. But what about police? Where do they fit into that equation? During the summer of 2020, when the public was bombarded with images of black people dying at the hands of police, when millions of people took to the streets to protest police violence, a lot of people began to wonder aloud, what is the role of police in our country? Are they, in fact, doing a good job of their stated role to protect and serve our communities? Or are they making things worse, arriving at situations that are already fraught with tension or violence and exacerbating those dynamics? That has brought some people to imagine a world without police or policing, even in instances of really violent crimes and really violent situations. The organizers against policing note that many criminal investigations go unsolved and that it's up to each of us, friends, family members, block clubs, broader community organizations, to prevent violence in the first place and intervene when things go wrong. Is that the right way to think of things? New books and research have recently been published questioning the role of police and coming up with alternative models, including the book, quote, Becoming Abolitionists. They make the claim that simply reforming the police with dashboard cams or diversifying workforces, it just won't be enough. The system itself 
needs to be abolished, according to this line of thinking, putting the power of keep people, keeping people safe in the hands of all of us instead of an occupying or authoritative force. But how would that actually work? What would that look like in practical terms? And do people really want the responsibility of living in that kind of world? Even further, is it possible to reform policing to the point where it does exclusively serve that role of protecting and serving the communities? That's where we want to begin the conversation today with what the role of policing actually is, what the possibility is for policing to reform and become better, and whether we ought to be thinking very seriously about some other way to ensure safety. Have we moved past the practical usefulness of something like policing? And are we in need of a really different model that depends more on us than on some authority? We want to hear from you, of course, during this conversation. Call and tell us what you think about policing. What do you think about police? What kind of role do you think they play in your community? Are they keeping it safe? Do you feel like they're making things worse? Do you fear the police? Do you fear police presence? Do you feel like when the police show up, it's just as likely something bad will happen as something to improve the situation? Or are you somebody who is all about policing and deeply believes that police are necessary and a crucial ingredient to the idea of safe communities? Call and tell us why. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We've got two great guests with us today to help frame up this conversation. Aaron Keith is the Managing Policy Counsel for the Detroit Justice Center. Aaron, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Washtenaw County Sheriff Jerry Clayton. He's a 30-plus year public safety services professional and currently serving his fourth term as Sheriff of Washtenaw County. Sheriff Clayton, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Aaron, I'm going to start with you, and I want to go kind of back a ways here with you first. Tell me about what your view of the police was when you were growing up. How did you form your view of the police and policing, and how did you imagine them? That's a great question. Um, My earliest experience of the police that I can recall is riding to school with my father Um, I had to be in first grade, so I was about five or six years old, and we were driving from the west side of the city to Gross Point. 
And I can just remember the flashing lights coming up behind the car, my dad switching off his radio, and just how tense everything felt in what seemed like an instant. And I can't remember, again, this was years ago, so I can't remember much about the officer, but I do know that my dad told the officer that he was just taking me to school and gestured to me in the backseat of his minivan in my school uniform and ponytails. And I believe the officer then let him go on about his day. But what stuck with me all these years later is just how tense and scared I felt and how the kind of drive to school that was so normal felt so different and felt so dangerous in a matter of seconds. Um, And I can remember that feeling even now. The fact that I still have this memory some 25 years later speaks volumes. Mm. Um, The other experience I can recall of police growing up was just that folks would always say, you call the police and they probably won't come. And I think that's an experience that many Detroiters know very well. Um, But beyond that, I, I think I was sheltered a lot from the realities about policing and how my surrounding community was experiencing the carceral structure writ large. And so from that point, you grow up to do the work that you're doing. And and we should note that uh, you lead the Detroit Justice Center's uh, policy strategy and you analyze legislation to remove legal barriers in the criminal legal system. Uh, You were also a staff attorney in the legal services and advocacy practice at DJC. Uh, You you, you grew up to to do that work and and you come to eventually the place where you say policing does not have a useful place in in our society. You become a police abolitionist. I, I would love for you to talk about the journey from those early experiences to the place you are now. Absolutely. So I would say I began becoming an abolitionist when I started asking the simple question, why? Um, Why does my community look like this? Why isn't there money to invest in neighborhoods? Why does the public safety conversation seems to always lead back to more police when I see so many other areas that need attention in order for my community to feel safe from housing to removing blighted buildings to having more employment opportunities to having safe warming shelters for men with children. Um, There's so many areas that seem to need investment. So why does public safety always mean police? Um, And then when I was in law school and Michael Brown was killed and then Freddie Gray was killed and Tamir Rice was killed and Sandra Bland was killed and Philando Castile was killed, I asked why, why am I in the classroom discussing these shootings um, with very few black students as an analytical exercise? And why are people trying to justify these killings? Why are the officers getting off? Why are there more protections for those with a blue uniform than with brown skin? And that led to kind of my trajectory of working in the juvenile justice system. And I had opportunities to represent youth accused of delinquency. And I started asking why again. Why are there more school resource officers than social workers? Why is there more state-of-the-art surveillance tech in schools than state-of-the-art trauma intervention programming? And so when that translated to me coming back to Detroit and working in the adult system, um, I asked those same questions. Why do I have clients who have been stopped by officers 10, 20, or 30 times to have as many traffic offenses as they have? Um, Why is this what police spent a lot of their time doing. (laughs) Why was the first infraction that 
um, someone paroling out of prison after doing 10 or 15 years? Why was their first infraction on their record a traffic offense? And when you follow the whys and are kind of open to the complexity, I think it leads you towards abolition because you can't simply reform a system that's functioning as it was designed to function and that has its origins in slave patrols protecting whiteness and what white folks back then believed to be their property. Mm-hmm. And, and that is what kind of led me to become an abolitionist and to explore this as a discipline. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so I, I want to give you a chance to also talk about the distinction between calling for the abolition of police and calling for the abolition of law, right? Uh, or the abolition of of justice or accountability even. Uh, what you're saying is that the current mechanism, the current infrastructure that we have for public safety is part of the problem and that what you would like to see is the construction of a very different infrastructure that would serve many of the same purposes and functions that we now assign, at least nominally, to police, but would look really different than the police forces uh, that, that exist in our communities right now. Absolutely. And and how would the how would we build those structures? What would those what would those alternative structures look like? I think for 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 some people, when they hear this idea of police abolition, it's not clear what would replace the police. Well, so I think when we dream of abolition, we have to sit in this dichotomy where um, if we don't say the word abolition and we don't do this exercise of thinking about what we could build instead will necessarily be reliant on police. Um, And so I think it's important to look at the numbers when we talk about what we could create. Um, For the 317 million we spend on policing in one year, we could build restorative justice centers or implement robust violence intervention programming or create mental health and rehabilitation facilities. For the same amount, we could renovate and modernize many Detroit public schools or create thousands of living wage jobs. Um, We could provide a $10,000 child care tax income credit for 31,000 families, which is a vital measure where 35% of Detroiters are living in poverty. Um, We could provide housing for every documented homeless person in Detroit with that amount of money. And so I think the, the real kicker is that you don't have to hate police or think they're all bad to want more for our city and to want to divest from carceral structures to invest in communities. Um, It's also important to note when we talk about what police actually do, um, that it's it's different than what's portrayed on Law and Order or, you know, your average TV show you see on the news. Um, It's bigger than that. Half of all criminal prosecutions in Michigan are for minor traffic offenses, excluding DUIs like driving with a suspended license. And Detroit has one of the lowest rates for solving violent crimes in the country. Um, The average arrest rate for murder investigations from 2010 to 2017 was like 41 percent. And so I think it's important that to know that there's no correlation between the number of police officers and crime rates. And that's largely because police respond after a crime has already occurred and after the harm has already been done. And so when we talk about how do we address these harms and how do we sit with these concepts, it's important to actually have the data and the facts in front of us that we're spending, you know, 317 million on our police department, which is more 
than the 22.5 million we spent on housing or the 12.7 million that we spend on healthcare. Um, a third of our general fund is spent on law enforcement. So it's not saying, okay, tomorrow by police, but it's saying that if we don't start doing this exercise and really investing and researching and evidence-based approaches to public safety, we live in a world where this is what we're um, kind of okay with, that, that this is what we're settling for and we deserve better and we can have it. So, Sheriff Clayton, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Uh, you're a police officer, a, a very high-ranking police officer in our community. You're also an African-American man. And and so I, I wonder if you can kind of answer some of what Aaron is talking about, both in, in terms of the problems we have with policing, but what the solution is as well. And obviously, uh, I don't expect that that I'll hear you say that uh, police abolition is 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 part of your menu of, of of choices. But but I guess tell me what else you would do uh, rather than than abolition to address some of the things that Aaron's talking about. Uh, sure. So so I'll, I'll start from this perspective. I, I won't talk about what I would do. I'll talk about what we do currently. And I'm, I'm glad you led with the first part. So. I'm an African-American male, been in this, on this planet, in this country for 57 years. I'm, I'm that before I'm anything else. Mm-hmm. My wife and I are raising three, three sons that are African-American. So it's important to me that we try to get this right. And when I retire, I'm still going to be black in this country. So I've lived that experience. And, and, and just because I've been in the profession doesn't mean I haven't lived the experience. I would argue being in the profession has motivated me even more to try to make the change. So I'll say this. Uh, look, I want to live in the same world that Aaron wants to strive for. If we have a world where we don't need the police, I'm okay with that. Uh, and I think we need to think about uh, is that possible and how we get there. Uh, I get distressed by the either-or proposition. So I was happy to hear Aaron say this is not a flip the switch and all of a sudden it goes away. We must work our way towards um, – a life, a vision where dependence on another group of people to help maintain public safety, community well-being, societal norms, whatever you want to call it, uh, doesn't rest in one particular group. Now, I'm just going to say this. Uh, society functions because we all adhere to a set of rules. Uh, and at the activity of helping enforce those rules by any other name, don't call it the police, call it something else, there will be a group of human beings charged with that responsibility. Uh, and, and over a period of time, they're going to have certain authority to do certain things. And here's the thing we can't walk away from. The key word is human beings, flawed human beings doing flawed things. Uh, so whether you send their police and you give them powers or regular folks from the community making decisions, these type of impacts are going to occur. Um, I think this is a police issue, but it's also a societal issue. You know, how have we defined public safety from a societal perspective? It's a societal culture. So Aaron talks about this tremendous financial investment that we continue to put into policing as opposed to the other structures that help meet basic needs. You get no argument from me there. But I will say this. uh, I think it is naive to think stripping money away from some money away from the police and reallocating that will solve the issue. It's not an either-or proposition. We must invest more on the front end. And I've said this in my own community. Look, 
if you have to trim our budget to reallocate to, 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 to front-end basic needs, then let's do that. But when we do that, let's understand the impact of all that work and that all of this is going to take time. Uh, so, so I think we have to strive for both. We have to strive to redefine what public safety and community well-being is. We have to redefine what the role of community members and this group that we call police is, and we have to do it in a very thoughtful way. I'm afraid of people to say, well, I want to cut 20% out of this budget and put it somewhere else without it being well thought out. Because what happens is the people we say we're trying to protect, the same people that get hurt. Now, let me also say this. I think the, the intent of quote-unquote policing is noble. The outcome of that intent all the time has not been good. I'm as cognizant of the history of American policing in this country, especially as it aligns to African-Americans, as anyone else because I studied it. From northern policing to southern policing in 1704, the Carolina uh, colonies and the slave patrols and the impact of that through Reconstruction, Black Codes, Jim Crow, all of that. I know that. So we're not getting rid of police tomorrow. So some of us have to work within that system mm. to challenge the culture of policing, to challenge the basic assumptions that, that, that police have, and to make that change as folks like Aaron on the outside are trying to do it from a societal perspective. And I just want to end with this because I'm sure there will be comments uh, that Aaron has and you have, um, that just like as, as, as I've sat down with my grandfather and my parents in the past and said, look, I don't like society or police judging us all the same with the same stereotype and responding to us this way, I think the same things goes for the police profession. Uh, and I'll include myself in that. Noble intent, doing the right thing, trying to do the right thing, and having no fear in challenging the status quo of police and also acknowledging the fact that there are very good police officers out there that put their lives on the line, they're cognizant of their implicit biases, they try to address that and provide the, 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 the best service. So this is complex, it's nuanced, there are no easy solutions, but us sitting down and talking about how we do this collaboratively, yeah. I think is the, the best uh, path forward. Mm. Okay, when we come back, we are gonna continue this really important conversation about policing, what it looks like, what it could look like, whether it should be reformed, whether it should go away in our country. Uh, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social media. We've already got a number of social media comments to add to the conversation. A couple of phone calls queued up. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us what you think about modern policing. What do you think about the efforts to reform policing in the wake of incidents like the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. Is it possible to reform the police to make them more responsive to the community than they are? Or should we really be talking about something different, an alternative model? 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station.
This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about policing this hour, the efforts to reform policing, and the idea that perhaps we could do without the police forces that all of us are really familiar with in our communities right now. Um, We want to hear from you about what you think about that conversation, about that narrative. What do the incidents like the murder of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis tell you about what we ought to do with police and policing? Does it say that we need reform, profound change in the very way that we conceive of policing? Or does it say that we need profound change in the way that we conceive of public safety and that we ought to be considering models that don't include the modern iteration of police forces. As always, you can uh, join us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, our, my two guests are Aaron Keith, who is the Managing Policy Counsel for the Detroit Justice Center, and Washtenaw County Sheriff Jerry Clayton. Uh, Aaron, I want to come back to you before we get to listeners. Um, And the first question I asked you was about, or the second question I asked you actually, was about this alternative model and and how it would work. Um, And you said a lot of things about spending money on uh, communities and in communities in a way that you believed would would lessen the incidence of of crime. Um, But but I want to push back just a little bit on that idea. Are you saying that we wouldn't have crime that needed to be dealt with? Are you saying that social spending would offset the entirety of the crimes that are committed in our communities? Uh, What would we do with people who steal? What would we do with people who commit violent crimes against other people in their communities that in in my view and in, in the, the, the things that I've read, don't correlate with lack of access to resources or poverty necessarily. Um, there are problems in our society that cause crime that don't have to do with the things that you would spend money on. So under that model, how would you address those things? How would we deal with those things? Um, That's a great question. I think there's a really great book that talks a lot about this exact principle. It's called Until We Reckon. Mm -hmm. And I've been reading it and honestly taking this on myself because it's not a simple answer. Again, abolition is an exercise. Mm -hmm. Abolition is a discipline, which means that in order to create a reality where we're not reliant on police, we have to think about those specific hard questions. I think too often we're okay with the idea of incapacitation as a means of preventing violent crime. Mm -hmm. We say if a person robs someone, they need to just be put in prison and that's the end of it. But the reality is a lot of these individuals then come out of prison and they're released back into our society. And if we don't change what that looks like, if we don't change the actual nature of our society itself, we don't actually get to the root of crime. We don't actually get to a a society that doesn't have crime. So it's not to say that we don't have big questions to answer as abolitionists. It's not to say that we don't need further research. But until we reckon with this idea that simply locking someone away and throwing away the key, simply policing someone 
is going to actually eradicate crime, we can't get to a place where we're not reliant on police to solve those types of issues. Mm -hmm. So I think that when you look at the collateral consequences, when you look at the why, when you look at something called adverse childhood experiences, which actually talks about a correlation between the trauma to crime um, ratio and those types of concepts, that is where we need more research. That is where we need more development. And that is where the abolition conversation can continue to grow. Because oftentimes when you even ask individuals who have been victims of violent crime, did the police make you feel better after this happened? Mm. Or did the police further traumatize you with their questioning? Did the police find the person who killed your loved one? Or is this murder still unsolved? Um, were the police there when your loved one was shot? Or did they come after the fact once that person had already passed? Those are the things that I think people are uncomfortable with. And it's fair. Those are fair questions if you live in a community that has experienced violence or if you've been a victim of violence yourself. The abolitionist model just says, hey, we can't reform our way to a fix. We need to reimagine a fix, transform over reform. Mm. That is all abolition is saying. Mm. So, so Aaron, I also want to give you a chance to respond to some of the things that uh, Sheriff Clayton said, and particularly the idea that the reforms that he and others are, are working on inside uh, police departments now have to be part of uh, of the overall picture, number one, because even as you say, you're not going to snap your fingers and, and get rid of police overnight, uh, but also because it's hard to imagine, uh, I think, uh, a society where there is no police force at all. And if you're going to have some form of policing, you need it to be better than, than what it is. What's your what's your response to that? So a couple different things um, in the sheriff raised a lot of very great points. Um, he mentioned that society functions when we adhere to a certain set of rules and there have to be people that enforce these rules. But police themselves don't often adhere to these rules. Some think they're above the law and <laughs> some try to enforce it but don't even know the law and use ignorance as ignorance of the law as an excuse to kind of be above it. <laughs> um, you get nervous when you hear people talk about stripping budgets from policing um, in, in terms of it not being well thought out, but that hasn't even happened yet. That hasn't even happened yet. Um, and oftentimes when you suggest the idea, it leaves folks at a standstill. You know, it's blasphemous to say divest from carceral structures. Um, and so I just want to say that abolition isn't that complex. Um, and people want to reform, but I kind of give the opposite view or the opposite idea and say, I'm sure there was a camp way back when that said, hey, why don't we just reform slavery? Why don't we just make it more humane? Um, yeah, its roots are bad, but ultimately we're employing enslaved Africans. I mean, what else are they going to do? Um, and that was deemed radical. <laughs> you know, I think many of the reasonable minds among us today, of course, know that the only appropriate step that gave America any semblance of a real path forward and the only path that would honor the humanity of the kidnapped Africans and their descendants who were born into bondage was to abolish slavery altogether. And so we 
have to name it. If we're too scared to name it and say what we want as our end goal, we won't get there. Hmm. If we just say reform, we won't get there. So you're and you're entirely comfortable with the one to one comparison that you're making here between slavery and policing. I just want to I just want to be clear about that. What I'm saying is it's a similar conversation in terms of the word abolish. And I'm not trying to make a one to one comparison. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying simply is that if we similarly don't engage in the exercise of discussing this as something that needs to be transformed, not something that just needs to be reinvented, not something that just needs to be, you know, made better. If we can't say this needs to be changed on its face because of its roots, because of the fact that people are killed every day, because of the fact that so many of these people who are killed, I have data on this, so many of these people who are killed, it starts with a nonviolent interaction. It starts with a mental health check. It starts with a traffic stop. If we can't say the word, we need to abolish this and find something better, that's dangerous. Mm. That's dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so, Sheriff Clayton, what do you make of this this uh, this argument that that Aaron's making, which is, I think, you know, quite compelling, which is that uh, the the roots of policing, the history of policing, is steeped in the idea of enforcing inequality, and that that is the reason we see. Um, you know, the, the, the uneven application of, of policing in, in our society today and that there is no way to really reform that without just completely rethinking the concept. Uh, you know, uh, an analogy might be uh, the legal principle of, you know, fruit of the, of the poisonous tree. In other words, uh, there is no way to, to, to cure that. You have to chop down the tree and, 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 and plant a new one. Uh, why doesn't that make sense when we look at the things that, uh, that police are doing and the effect that they're having on, on communities? Well, well, first off, I'm glad there was a clarification that there wasn't a one-on-one comparison with slavery and policing, but there is definitely a relationship there, right? So I don't care what you call it. Abolitionists reform, reimagine, recreate. I've heard it a hundred different ways. I'm going to say what I said at the beginning. It starts with a reimagining of societal culture. So policing is a manifestation of American societal culture. So unless American culture wraps its mind around black people, white supremacy, all the things that go along with that, call it whatever you want, divest from this thing we're calling police and put it somewhere else, you're going to see a manifestation of racism, and disproportionality in that new setting. It's, it's no different from what you see in healthcare. It's no different than what you see in all the other professions where people have discretion to take action and that discretion is impacted by implicit society and societal bias. These things exist. So I'm not running away from that. I'm just saying, well, okay, let's think about what this looks like. How do we reconstruct it? And one of the things that you, you, we talked about is the, the incarceration state, state, and police are a part of that, but so is the entire system. And the entire system, again, is a manifestation of societal culture. So I'll say again, I think that there's a place for a group of people who are charged with the responsibility of helping society maintain acceptable norms, mm. helping. We aren't the ones that are 
should be tasked with doing it by ourselves. There is no one group that should be tasked with doing it by themselves. We want to talk about alternative responders. I'm first in line to have that discussion. We're trying to figure that out ourselves. And once we, once, once we determine, is this the group that's going to do it? Community-based groups. I've gone to neighborhood watch groups and said, look, let's build this. Who wants to be part of this with your neighbor? But I'll tell you this. We get calls because neighbors don't want to go next door to tell their neighbor to turn their, t their TV down or their radio down. Mm. And what I get a lot of is, yep, I want to do that, but I'm not the one that's going to do it. Mm. Somebody else is going to do it. People are, are, are quick to tell clinicians that you should be the first responder in some of these behavioral health situations that actually have a mix of behavioral health and actual danger involved. We want the clinicians to go, but guess what? When I talk to a lot of the clinicians that are on the front, that they're doing this, they say, yeah, I'll go in this situation, but not in this situation, because now my life is in danger. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, let's think about this and be thoughtful. I'm not arguing with Erin. I don't agree with everything she says, but I agree with the premise. Mm -hmm. So let's think about how do we get there. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and listen, I get just as much inside of the profession that I represent. Pushback. Because we're like, look, we got to push this envelope. And anybody that studies what we do, we're one of the groups in, in our county that hire more formally justice-involved people into our organization than any other governmental in, in our county. Why? Because I believe that the way for us to build this is to work with the people that have been impacted by the current state to help us figure out well, how to build the future state. So uh, we need to take another quick break. I am, uh, I am, uh, of course, uh, hopeful that this conversation has been as uh, scintillating for our listeners as it has been for me. And I want to apologize to the listeners who are normally a much bigger part of the program that uh, we haven't gotten to them yet. But we are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to get to uh, our listeners, Anthony in Detroit, Abe in Detroit, uh, Il Rob Morgan in Macomb. Uh, we're going to talk with you about what uh, you think about policing. We also have a number of social media comments, of course, to, to add to the conversation. If you want to join us, 313-577-1019 is always the number here. And you can always go to social media and put comments there, and we can include you that way as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. talking about policing here on Detroit today and what kinds of reforms we might imagine for policing. It seems that everybody now agrees that uh, we need major change in police departments to be more responsive, more respectful of communities. Uh, the question is, how far should that reform go? Should it include the discussion of abolition of modern policing as we know it and replacement with other structures that would uh, hold people accountable, keep people safe? Or is it enough just to talk about changing the police departments that uh, that we have in our communities? Aaron Keith, who is Managing Policy Counsel for the Detroit Justice Center, is one of our guests. The other is Washtenaw County Sheriff Jerry Clayton. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. Tell us what you think about the, the narrative about police and change. How would you implement it? 313-577-1019. 
is the number on the phones. Uh, you can also go to social media and put comments there. I'm going to start uh, this segment with uh, with a couple social media comments that we've gotten. Dave on Twitter says, one of the issues we have is our over-dependence on cars. Police have to spend so much time and money policing traffic to no real end. Reducing crashes and, and speeding could be done through traffic calming road designs, automatic ticketing, and factory-installed speed governors. Really interesting perspective there. Um, Josh on Twitter says, except that funding police, funding for public safety versus other areas is an either-or proposition because municipalities, and the state for that matter, have limited budgets. Throwing more and more money at police means less money for other areas of government. Of, of government. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, most police do the best they can, but when something bad happens, it gets more attention than the good. The red tape behind the scenes is a barrier to getting rid of bad cops. Knowing that, uh, knowing that as a person of color, I still get nervous when the flashing lights pop up behind me. Uh, good uh, representation of views there on those comments. Uh, let's get to the phones here. Uh, let's start with Anthony in Detroit. Anthony, Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Um, reform looks like this. Police brutality complaints are taken seriously, and they're not investigated by the police. They should be investigated by a civilian board that, have, that, that has some actual power. The police protect themselves, period. Yeah. You know, the whole notion that, well, you know, cops have to make split-second decisions in, you know, in the heat of the moment. Well, so do soldiers in combat. And guess what? If a soldier in combat, which I have been, if I was to kill someone that I should not have killed, there's going to be repercussions for that. Mm. Because fearing for your life and split-second decisions and making the wrong choice is not an excuse. Yeah. These, uh, these uh, sheriffs, these police chiefs know who their bad officers are. <clears throat> these unions know. And they need to not be protected. They need to be removed at the earliest sign of a problem. Anthony, I really appreciate the call, and I especially appreciate your perspective, you know, as as someone in uniform. Um, Aaron Keith, I'm going to give you the first crack at this because I know we have to let you go, but but I do want to talk about how the kind of reform that Anthony's talking about fits into your view of of police reform and the whole idea of, of abolition. One of the big problems, of course, is police brutality and inappropriate conduct. Uh, abolition would solve that by removing them from the equation. Is what Anthony's talking about uh, another possibility? I think it all flows from the same idea. Um, we have to start somewhere. So if, yes, creating a civilian review board that actually has teeth and actually has some ability to go around qualified immunity and go around the unions to hold people accountable. Sure, that's great. But I think ultimately what you still have is someone who's been victimized by the police in that incident. You have someone whose family is now traumatized by the police. You have someone, if the person was killed, who's going to grow up without that loved one in their life, without that income in their household. Um, You don't factor all of that in when you just talk about reform, right? Because Yes, let's say someone is compensated. You can't compensate for what has happened to that person's family, what has happened to the way their community has been, you know, impacted by whatever happened to the individual when they were brutalized by the police or victimized by the police. Um, So I still think that even where people want to talk about reform, 
um, it goes back to the abolitionist conversation because of what we ultimately want to see. It's not enough for a civilian review board to just slap an officer on the wrist or even fire that officer if ultimately they can just go get a job as a school resource officer in the public school system or in a different sure. you know, jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I kind of want to say um, is that people really talk a lot about this idea of either or, the abolition or reform or defund the police being inflammatory. I want to posit that truthfully, we wouldn't even still be having these conversations if it weren't for the activists who were on the front lines screaming defund the police. We screamed reform, reform, reform for years. And you saw that these people were still getting killed and brutalized. People added body worn cameras. It caught them being brutalized on tape, but it didn't change what was actually happening. And so I think that it's important to realize that a lot of the reason why we're still having these conversations and doing this important analytical exercise and, and sitting with these hard problems is because people were brave enough to say defund the police, because people were brave enough to have the abolitionist conversation and put their bodies on the line. Um, and so I just wanted to acknowledge that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Aaron, as I said, I know we, we need to let you go just a little before the end of the show. But but I want to thank you uh, really deeply for for being here uh, and, and, and offering not just an explanation, but but such great perspective uh, on where where you're where you're thinking about these things and, and what you think we ought to do. Aaron, I really appreciate you being here with us on Detroit today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Sheriff Clayton, I want to give you a chance now to, to answer what Anthony was talking about, which is more accountability for police who misbehave. I, no argument there. I just think we have to think about the We have sort of uh, made accountability um, um, this, this word where we think it's going to accomplish everything through a civilian review. For those of us that study civilian review boards, there are major metropolitan police departments throughout this country that have had very robust citizen review boards, police commissions with, with uh, community members of, of a part of it, with subpoena powers, with investigative powers. One comes to mind that I will not mention the city, but they have, a, have had a very robust police commission but have been under federal consent decrees. DOJ investigation, mm -hmm. a whole litany of things. So that's not the that's not the sole answer, uh, uh, because and the other piece of it is because most citizen review boards are back end accountability. Now, if we want to just have an accountability discussion, let's talk about front end and back end accountability. Back end accountability, to Aaron's point, occurs after a mistake has been made or or an action has taken that has harmed someone in the community, and we. And, and a review board is going to investigate it and hold accountable, which sometimes is synonymous with punishing not only that individual, but the agency and the professional role, versus fronting accountability where you have bodies that come together with police agencies to help develop policy, mm -hmm. develop training, operational protocols, review existing policies. If there's a contemplation of, of purchasing and implementing surveillance technology, working with of that group to develop First off, should we have that technology? And then how should we use it? What should the policies be? All front end should be part of hiring commissions. 
to 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 vet the people that want to be in the agency. So you you couple that with so what if we're doing that and we create the kind of structures that limit or prevent or eliminate harm being done? That's where we should focus our energies. Yeah. And ultimately, if you can get front end and back end accountability that is done in conjunction with the community you serve, I think that puts us in a better position. Mm. Uh, again, Anthony, really appreciate the call and uh, the insights. Let's go to Abe in Detroit. Abe, you're next. You there, Abe? Yes, how you doing? Good, how are you? Great. Well, my position is very simple. Until we get rid of the human rights and civil rights issues, we're going to have problems in the black community. Right now, black people are considered civil rights individuals not human rights individuals. Hmm. Therefore, when you're approached by the police, you're not approached with a human rights attitude. You're approached with hmm. a civil rights attitude, which are two different things, two different guidelines. Yeah. So therefore, let's assume that we have a crowd of people downtown that are non-white. When things get out of hand, they bring in the tanks, the dogs, and the police force. When you have a white group of people downtown to get out of line, the police stand and watch because they're human, and they might decide, not to do anything. Yeah. Abe, I, that, that's a wonderful, that is a wonderful insight and, and a great example. Um, Sheriff Clayton, what do we make of th- that implicit difference that plays out in explicit ways uh, in terms of the way that, that African Americans are seen and, and white people are seen? This is a big part of the problem with with policing. We've only got about a minute and a half left, but but I want to have you talk about, especially from uh, your perch there in Washtenaw County, uh, how do you change that? Uh, I'll go back to what I said before. This is this is a societal issue. This this is a manifestation of how we as as black folks have been viewed and treated in this country. And to, to I think it's Abe's point. I, I think there's there's a lot to be said there. Uh, uh, the preamble of some of our policies starts with from a human perspective that we have to acknowledge and value the, 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 the humanity of everyone we come in contact with. I think that's really important distinction that first off, we are human beings before anything else. And we all have these unalienable rights that should be respected and should be factored into all of our actions. But that is not just a police issue. That is a societal issue. So as long as we want to separate that it's got to be a police reform, whatever, versus we have to tackle the societal challenges that we have in conjunction with the police uh, uh, issues, then I think we're going to continue to have these discussions. Okay. Washtenaw County Sheriff Jerry Clayton, um, it was really wonderful to have you here to share your experience not only as a law enforcement officer, but as an African-American law enforcement officer uh, with these issues. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We're going to talk about Black History Month curriculums, how it's being taught and how it should maybe be changing in terms of what we want to make sure young people know about African-American history. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.